as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. I'm talking today with Marlene Westerfeld and Rochelle Wicks about the study called Examining the Visual Attention to Print versus Pictures During Shared Book Reading in Preschoolers with Autism. This study was awarded a Queensland Registration Board Legacy Grant in 2017 and has recently been completed. I'm sure everybody listening is very familiar with Marlene Westerfeld and I don't need to introduce her further. Rochelle Wicks is currently undertaking a PhD and this study forms a part of her PhD. We'll have the opportunity to hear a little bit more about some more coming out from her PhD later in this podcast. So I'm going to talk first with Marlene and ask her to run us briefly through the background to the study. Yes, thank you, Corey. So the background is actually quite simple. We started um, looking into the emergent literacy skills of children on the autism spectrum quite a few years ago now. And what we discovered, which was in line with what other research had found, is that many of these preschoolers had real strengths in alphabet knowledge, whether we um, considered or measured it as letter sound knowledge or letter name knowledge, it really didn't matter. Um, And we were just interested in why that was the case. So we ran some analyses and we looked at influences like um, intelligence or language ability. We looked at gender, but really we couldn't pinpoint um, what actually uh, made these children so much better at alphabet knowledge than their typically developing peers. So that then um, made us think about what do kids actually look at during shared book reading in that sort of home environment um, with their parents? So there you go. That's where the that's how the grant was born, so to speak. That's fascinating. It brings to mind a little fellow that I worked with some years ago now when I was in private practice who was on the autism spectrum and could read just about anything you put in front of him but couldn't understand what he was reading. So what is interesting there, Corey, is that that's a little bit of a a misconception. Many people actually, when we talk about, you know, doing research into literacy development of children on the autism spectrum, say to us, oh, but these kids can read. What we've actually found is that about 50% of the kids, once we followed them into um, the early school years, 
couldn't actually read. They weren't very good at decoding. So, but letter sound and letter name knowledge were still important predictors. So we really need to find out what makes some of these kids so good at it. And you're absolutely right. We have some superstars in decoding, but um, we just don't know why. And um, yeah, and again, that brings us to um, Rochelle's study. So we were very lucky to get the grant. Mm. And then for me to sell it to Rochelle, who said, oh, I'd love to do more research into that. Um, so, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And in doing the research, you've used some interesting, not entirely new, but interesting technology, and that's eye tracking. Rochelle, I understand that you're responsible for developing this aspect of the study. So could you tell us a little bit about that now? Sure. Um, so... In order to do the eye tracking, I chose two um, children's storybooks that were developmentally appropriate for our age group, which is three to five years old, and made digitised versions of those um, using various different um, software platforms um, that had an embedded narration um, and embedding some animation to um, simulate a pointing prompt um, for our prompt version. Um, so once that was done, the eye tracking is a remote eye tracker. Um, so it's unobtrusive. Children can move about. We chose this one because it specifically can cope with quite a large degree of movement. Um, most other, there are a lot of other eye, eye trackers where the head needs to be kept absolutely still. Um, but this one was the best option for us, given that we're, you testing children, but and also children with a developmental disability who, and children themselves at any age like that would move around a bit. So, <laughs> um, so yes, remote eye tracker that just affixed to the bottom of a computer monitor. So they sat on a chair and then just watched like a, a digital ebook, I guess, um, with narration um, and the eye tracker. It measures the um, corneal reflections of their eyes. So you need to calibrate the eye tracker to the child and they have to be sitting a certain distance away, at least 60 cent within about 60 centimetres. Um, and once that calibration's done um, and you can use um, different point grids, but we used a five point grid where you had a, a small red dot that moved across the screen and the children had to watch that with their eyes um, trying to keep their heads still um, and once that was done then we could do the recordings of their watching the stories and it was calibration was actually the most challenging part actually of, of the whole experiment because you had to get it quite precise um, and if you if the dots weren't precise then you hit recalibrate and they'd watch it again um, and especially with the children um, on the spectrum it's a, it was a matter of striking a balance between getting it as good as you could and keeping their attention so um, that was a big um, kind of learning curve I guess um, in the art tracking technology. That's really interesting. I had no idea that there were different types of eye tracking devices, one of which you have to keep the head still. You raised something interesting that's about the 
design of the study when you talked about the two different um, prompting methods that you used. Maybe one of you would like to talk about that a little bit further. Yeah, and also I'll, I'll let Rochelle definitely talk about this because she's, she's definitely um, our expert here. But I think the other thing that is interesting to point out is that it wasn't a simple matter of digitizing the books. Like um, you really had to, and I didn't realize this when we wrote the grant, but you really had to be careful that there was no contamination, if you like, or crossover between the picture aspect of the books and then the text aspect so that you could be fairly certain that the kids were actually um, focusing on either the picture or the print. So there was this lovely um, blank space in between and also from one page to the next the pictures would actually sometimes be at the top and then at the bottom. So the kids couldn't simply just look at the top of the page all the time, but they really had to be actively looking at either the pictures or the print. Yeah. Or the print. Yeah. yeah. So And then the prompt version was something that um, Rochelle added. So you may mm. want to talk a bit more about that. Um, so in the prompt version, um, in both versions, we had a narrator who narrated the text that was on each slide, so the text of the storybook. Um, but in the prompt versions, each page um, included either just a verbal prompt to an aspect of the print or the picture, and another 10 pages, there was an, a hand, the animated hand that came in that accompanied that um, verbal prompt as it was being spoken. So we could see the difference, because there's research with typically developing children that showed no difference in the efficacy of using a verbal or a non-verbal prompt. So in having both separate, we could see and tease out perhaps if that's the case for the children on the spectrum as well. Yeah, and the kind of prompts that we used were like, oh, look, um, Poesy's name starts with the p sound. Here is the p. Or, oh, look, Poesy's got a frog in his bag. Frog. And it would point to the tiny little frog in the bag. Yeah. So there were prompts that we would normally use as mm -hmm. clinicians and parents to point out points of things of interest to the children. And the hand tracking under, re-saying re the words of the print and tracking as we would do, as we run our fingers underneath the words as we read to children. So am I right in thinking that, well, no, clearly you've explained that some prompts were to the print and some prompts were to the pictures. And my guess is that you try to have equal numbers of prompts to print and pictures. That's right, yeah. Fascinating. Well, the things you don't think about when you set out to design a research project. Marlene, would you like to tell us a little bit about the findings from the study? Yeah, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll structure it. And again, I'll let Rochelle um, explain it a little bit more. So basically, then our big questions were, do children with autism look at print more often and for longer than um, their typically developing peers? And what did we find? Um, we found it was an interesting finding. We found that they looked more frequently at print compared to um, the children without autism. But when, you, when we looked at how long they were looking, both groups were the same. So we think that perhaps that the children on the spectrum were looking more often, but they were looking for shorter durations. They're quicker in their glances um, compared to their typically developing peers. 
And then our next question was really all around prompting. Um, is prompting successful in changing where preschoolers with autism look, either at print or to pictures? And what did we find? Um, we found that they were effective, um, that they did look at the prompts. But what we found is that there was no difference in the print prompts, but there were differences in picture prompts. Um, so the children on the spectrum looked less often at the picture prompts compared to their typically developing peers. Mm. And then Rochelle did some further analyses as well, didn't you? You sort of wanted to know what influences children's responses um, or reactions to the prompts. Yeah. So with that, we looked at the effect of autism traits and number of autism traits um, and showed that as autism traits increased, looking at the prompted pictures decreased um, and they looked for and less time at the pictures as well. Yeah. So it was purely the number of autism traits were there different did you look at differences in the type of autism traits or is it just cumulative no, we used a measure called the social communication questionnaire so it's a um a form that we used i guess the lifetime form mm -hmm. um and parents it's a parent report measure on asking them things of their, their child's behaviour and language and those sorts of things. And it can be used to verify diagnosis in uh, a formal diagnosis and it gives you an idea of the number of autism traits and that's what we used as our measure. Thank you. That's a great explanation for someone who's not immersed in the autism field. <laughs> and I understand, Rochelle, that you have some further research ongoing in this area. Yeah, so um, we're extending on this study um, in a couple of ways. So we're also looking at the influence of age and nonverbal ability um, on where children look and compare that between groups, looking at links between two emergent literacy skills, uh, receptive vocabulary um, measured by the PPPT4, and alphabet knowledge um, and also at the moment just wrapping up a third study where we're we're wanting to track children longitudinally across time and see if where they're looking during the preschool the first time when they're in preschool whether that's linked to their early word learning um, and early word reading I should say um, when we thought initially once they're in prep but we had to modify that a little due to COVID and, and other things um, happening. So it's just a longitudinal study now. So, yeah. So at what stage in their schooling are your participants now? So we've got um, six in our children without autism who are in prep this year. Um, all of my, because we use the same cohort that participated in the second study that we're talking about, um, and all but one child whose parent agreed to participate were not at school. So we had one child um, on the spectrum that was in prep, and the rest are still um, either attending AEIU or another early learning centre. Um, and then because of that, we then 
um, recruited some typically developing children who are still at their early learning centres as well to get a a bit nicer idea of and differences between those who are at school and those who aren't. Can I just clarify for those of us who aren't in Queensland, how old are kids in PrEP in Queensland? So children in are eligible to start PrEP in Queensland if they turn five by the 30th of June in that year. So a lot of, some of them are four when they start, which is, look at them and they're so tiny. <laughs> so it's similar to, um, it's a foundation year of schooling. So um, some states would call it foundation year and other states would call it kinder. So um, we call it prep. Yeah, why not? And here in WA, we call it preschool. Ah, well, there you go. So just following on from that, Corey, um, why we wanted to do these follow-up studies is because there are some assumptions, of course, that we're making. And the assumptions are, um, is looking at prints or looking at pictures, is that actually related to the children's vocabulary or is it related to their alphabet knowledge? So that was one assumption that we needed to test. And that's Mm -hmm. why we're now looking at the correlations between the looking, whether it's frequency or duration and um, their skills measured objectively. And the other one is that we're assuming if you're better at something when you're tiny, are you still good at it a year later? And does it actually lead to better skills? Um, And we're particularly interested in word reading Mm -hmm. skills. So again, I think Rochelle's um, study or the results from her study will be very um, clinically relevant for us as speech pathologists and teachers, actually. Yes, yes, some very useful information set to come out of that. Before we finish, Rochelle, can I just ask you about the technology, the eye tracking technology, and what applications you might see for that in the future, either in research or in practice? I don't know whether it's possible to see it being used in practice at this point. Yeah, of course. Um, The eye tracking technology is actually a burgeoning within the research um, literature. Um, That's now being used to aid diagnosis. Um, Is there known, um, I guess, attentional biases um, of children on the spectrum or a lot who then go on to be diagnosed um, on the spectrum um, looking at um, faces and preferring objects and that sort of thing so that's increasingly being used and I can see that actually coming into clinical practice Um, I guess it would it's quite expensive though so that's one barrier I think um, in that kind of research to practice kind of um, overlay Um, but that would be really good. It's a lovely objective measure um, because diagnosis at the moment is very subjective Um, and particularly when you're looking at other like subgroups within um, children like particularly with gender, females get missed quite a lot through behavioural measures. Um, So this gives, gives a nice objective measure that hopefully they won't slip under the radar as much and they get, I guess the help that they need earlier. What about mobile technology? What Matt is um, currently working on? My other supervisor, Matt Stainer, is working with another honours student who's in engineering, I think, and they're developing um, autism-friendly eye-tracking glasses. And you can buy the eye-tracking glasses through um, companies like Toby, who make the one that we used. But it's a really... 
it's like the next step from the mobile eye tracker because then we it gives more of an ecologically valid way where you, you could actually, instead of the children looking and reading the storybook on a screen, you could sit there with a book and be able to track their eye movements with the glasses on, which would be lovely. Um, and hopefully down the track we get to do that as well. be very interesting. Fascinating, really fascinating. I'd like to thank both of you for what's been a really, really interesting discussion, interesting to me and I hope to everybody who listens For those of you who are listening, there's also a short video has been produced and we'll include the link to that on somewhere in this podcast, in the advertising, I imagine. It's also available in a Speak Out article that you will see shortly in your inbox. So thank you very much again and we look forward also to seeing a publication arising from this study. And Rochelle's presenting some of it at the upcoming um, Speech Pathology Australia conference. Yes. Fantastic. Our online conference in 2021. Correct. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.